Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 145. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Massachusetts. And normally on Life of the School, I sit down with a panel of life science teachers and I ask them what's going on in their classroom. But today is the day that I am putting the podcast on pause. After six years of putting together episodes, um, we have reached the summer, and I have a crazy busy summer, as do many of my regular panelists. And uh, looking ahead at the hecticness and, and the schedule we normally keep, I I love to keep to a schedule. There is no way we're going to get uh, out two episodes in July and two episodes in August. So at this point, I'm going to put the Life of the School podcast on pause. Uh, is it a permanent pause? We'll see. Uh, I'm not ruling out coming back for a fall set of episodes. So keep subscribed to the podcast. Keep an eye out on the Twitter feed, but for now we're gonna we're gonna take at least the month of July off, and probably July and August, and uh, and we're gonna recoup. But I didn't want to leave you without an episode for the summer, and uh, so I have put together a a clip series of some of my favorite memories from the past six years. And in fact, I went back and this is mostly from the first three. Um, I've had so many wonderful conversations and I've grown so much as a teacher having these conversations over the last few years. So uh, I hope you enjoy this uh, series of clips that I've picked from uh, a a collection of episodes uh, from earlier in Life of the School. We're going to start off with a clip from episode one with Brian Dempsey. So when you, um, you know, when you sit down and you're planning things out, you know, you, we all have our, our sort of tools we like to go to. Um, are there any, you know, favorite strategies you like to use in the classroom? Um, you know, either old school strategies or something maybe more technical that you've been playing with? Uh, old school, um, I, I feel like microscopy is, is still very useful for students to do. Um, ch- assessing that can be a challenge. Um, here at AB, we do a, uh, a lab practical, but I know, Aaron, you're, you're involved in that as well. Um, and some, some other things that, um, that are a little bit more technical that we've been doing recently is, um, is uh, PCR. Uh, we actually, um, actually, Aaron was involved in this <laughs> as well, where we had students go out and collect insects uh, to potentially look for a type of um, bacteria called Wolbachia. And so the students were outside with nets and, you know, spent maybe about 45 minutes outside. And we put the insects into alcohol. And then the next day they did a DNA extraction where we were able to uh, successfully um, get um, DNA after uh, we amplified it. And, uh, and then once we did that, we were able to then run a gel. And we actually found that our, our insects that we collected did, in fact, have Wolbachia, several of them, actually. And we ran a control just to be sure that we were getting, um, sometimes when students don't get Wolbachia, it's possible that's because they didn't do the extraction correct or some other step may have, uh, didn't occur correctly. So we also looked for um, a type of um, DNA in the mitochondria of the insects. And so we were able to get sort of a double band in that approach. So using both sort of traditional and newer techniques, it's, it's always fun. Uh, biology is a, a changing field and it kind of challenges us as educators to, to keep abreast of that and to kind of play basically with our students.
Here's a clip from episode seven with David Kanofsky. Um, I, I, you know, I'm somebody who who will talk to I, anyone who knows me will say I will talk your ear off face to face, you know, <laughs> but I'm not somebody who gets who puts myself out there sort of in the larger community. Um, and I sort of had to grow into that role. But I remember something you said very early uh, in your horizontal transfer podcast. You basically said I have a real th- low threshold for sharing. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm curious sort of where that professional practice comes from. Is that you know, is that from that nature of what you saw growing up? Is it from the culture of the school you you teach in? Is it specific mentors? Where did that come from? Yeah, it, it comes from, I think, all of those places. I mean, my parents both taught in a time where it wasn't quite as easy to share as it is these days. I mean, it's, it's so easy to share what you're doing in your classroom. Um, you know, you can do it using, using free online tools where you can just put everything kind of as an afterthought. And so uh, my parents were always very collaborative kinds of educators, but they didn't really have the the options that I think a lot of us in education right now have in terms of getting materials out there. Um, but it's, I've always been really um, open in terms of just putting my stuff out there. Like, I don't, I'm, I'm not proud. I don't, I don't have a lot of pride in the work that I do. I mean, I think it's good work, but I, what I mean by that is I won't get upset if somebody takes what I do, what I do and improves it, or if somebody finds mistakes in what I do. I, I won't be embarrassed at all when, when that kind of process happens. And I think it's how work gets made better. And then I think the other thing is that, I mean, I forget, I think it was Neil Gaiman I saw give a speech where he said that he really viewed his career as one of, you know, kind of being on a, on a desert island and just throwing, throwing uh, messages in a bottle off the desert island into the water. And, you know, 90 of those bottles will, will never hit a destination. But, you know, one out of every 10 of them might, might get somewhere and resonate with somebody. And I've found that, too. In, in order really to get the kinds of educational structures that have really resonated with me and that I've really been really fortunate to, to be part of, I, there is that kind of ratio of a lot of the stuff you put out there. I mean, it's just not going to resonate. And so you just have to, you really just have to keep throwing it out there. And then people usually, or it's been my experience, they'll take the stuff that really, really sticks in their brains and they'll take it and they'll run with it as long as you make it available for them and make it okay for them to do that. Yeah, I, I think for what I found is, I, and this is sort of going back, you know, um, you know, Paul's not in the room, but I think, you know, you're used to Paul always being in the room. Right. Um, you know, I saw I saw Paul's video a few years ago and I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. I wonder how you do that. Yeah. And I couldn't I couldn't <laughs> figure out. I mean, I would direct kids over there as, a, oh, you need an extra like 10 minutes on such and such a topic. Sure. And I would send them those videos. But to me, you know, they had a little bit of value. Right. But it's only been when I started to take the tools that he was using and it was the lens of seeing somebody else make something and then learning how other educators were taking those things and making them their own. Yeah. Um, and, and so for me, the exposure is um, not to be, you know, overwhelmed by, Oh my God, look at these amazing people who are doing these <laughs> amazing things and I'll never do that. And I'm just going to go in my room and close the door or anything like that. Or I'm not going to take necessarily what they are, unless I'm going to take them as inspiration or as a jumping off point yeah. to modify what it is that I'm doing. Um, and I think sort of that's where I am. I need to take time to reflect, think about what does this mean when I take it over in my 47 minute periods that I have and what I ask my kids to do. And, you know, sometimes questioning what's the meaningful work that I'm asking my kids to do. Right. I think that's a really important part of the process. I mean, video has a lot of issues tied into it specific to video, but I, I'm like you in that, um, I mean, I think we all 
everybody who teaches AP Biology is familiar with what Paul's done over the last, oh, I don't know, let's let's say for the sake of modesty, let's say five years that he's been doing it, or six years yeah. or seven years. And um, people have tried to implement it in different ways. And uh, I think you do, you do need to find the, the structure that works best for you. And so by the only way that you can do that is if there are people like Paul who are putting things out there and are willing to share sort of how they're how they're doing it. And I, I also think that that's kind of a fundamental change to sort of the dominant model of, of educational resource creation for a long time, which was just sort of locked away by, um, you know, various concerns and really could only be used in limited capacities. And, mm-hmm. and as these tools have gotten wider and wider over the last, let's say, 10 years, it's really kind of blown the door open on that so that people can take what other people are doing and, and really adapt it and modify it and do that work of kind of sitting with it and having it marinate in their, in their own process to figure out how to, how to implement that into their own classrooms. Yeah, one of the things I actually did this week is uh, when we knew that we were going to talking is I, I went actually back and listened to Don't Cringe Too Much. Oh, so I did God. listen to some of the, the, the first <laughs> few of the uh, horizontal transfers. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it was really interesting because Paul was talking about specifically having the textbook company come in right. and tell him he had to take down a bunch of his videos because he was event. using the images. Yes. And, and I had this moment because I have been... Uh, working a little bit on some videos, um, and maybe we can t- touch upon this a little bit later. But I've been working on a few different videos, and I specifically have been searching. Oh yeah, using the you know labeled for reuse. Absolutely. Uh, like specifically starting that, and honestly, I would have never done that. You know, when if sure. I was going to do this now, and and I had came up with the ideas. Oh, there are these tools out there. You know, like an Ed Puzzle and YouTube, right. and there's people doing the flip classroom. Being able to hear people talk about that, uh, to see the the resources that that have been, um, it's been wonderful for me in terms of professional development. Um, I, you know, it's 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 also been, and I think this is probably one of the more important things. Uh, I think there's a really nice humbling aspect yeah. um, I think when you're right. you know when you have a lot of wins and, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've had really great luck the last few years as a teacher. Sure. And then you, you get to go and you go to the NABT conference and you sit down and you look around and go, Oh yeah. No, I, I feel <laughs> no, on my best days, I feel wonderful and I feel like I own this, but there's so much sure. more I could do. And there's so many things that I could work on that my career has been wonderful to this point, but Oh my God, I only have like, you know, 15 20 years left right. to work on this. like yep. it's i almost feel like the i'm on the back nine and i've got like it's like the time is ticking yeah i know, you know what you're like, saying i gotta work on all this stuff to to get better and um you know that's, i think it speaks a little bit personally to drive but also a little bit to you know how you can get your eyes opened when you go out and you see those uh the wonderful work that other people are doing yeah i've, I've had that experience at like every professional event i've ever gone to just to be in a room with folks who are doing like amazing things who aren't maybe as outwardly focused or outwardly projecting as I might be. So you don't even know the cool things that these people are doing until you talk to them. And then you're like, wow, you're doing things that are unbelievably impressive. And it is, it's a really humbling experience, but it is, I think, really important uh, for, to, to have that experience as an educator because it gives you ideas and it helps you think about kind of where you want to focus your attentions going going forward so it's it's a really important process um i'll just a tangential story when paul had the uh, issue with pearson and the images that he used in some of his early videos i was right in the middle of rolling out um my my prezies that i used in ap biology for a number of years and these were like a wide release resource and i had 
a friend who had a connection at Pearson initially, and so I had written to the guy at Pearson and said, is it okay if I use the images from Campbell 7th edition or whichever edition I used? And he wrote back and said, fine. And I don't think he really understood sort of the, <laughs> the sharing aspect of the Prezies and the fact that, you know, everybody could make a copy who wanted to make a copy. And so then Paul had this issue with Pearson and had to, you know, take down all these videos and change the images in them. Um, and I, I, I was totally freaking out at that point because I was maybe three three units into this really big project, and I wrote to this guy again, and I said, you know, is it, are you sure that this is okay? Because I need to I need to pull this chain now if I'm gonna have to if I'm gonna have to change the way that I'm doing these images. And and he said he said it's okay as long as you don't do anything else with the images, as long as you only use them for these prezies. And so I'll, I'll frequently get questions from people that are like, how did you get the permission to use the Pearson images in your prezies? And I'm always like, just really dumb luck and timing more than anything else. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> there's a, that is interesting timing. Yeah. I, I, I would have, I think I would have totally freaked out. I might've just gone like, yeah, we're just going to do creative commons. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in the uh, videos I've rolled out over the last two years, it's, it's, all Creative Commons stuff, like Zotero and Wikimedia Commons are like my two best friends when I go through to yeah. gather images and media for the purpose of a video. It's like, you, you need to do it. Yeah. Here's a clip from my conversation with Paul Strode on episode 13. Another topic that you've written a lot about is that hypo- idea of a hypothesis. Yes. And, um, and I, I will tell you, I have read and reread your hypothesis writing so many times, uh, <laughs> mostly because I do it wrong. So, um, okay. so I'm going to ask you to first explain, you know, what I'm doing wrong. So I'm going to tell you what I do. Okay. I have my students write if then because format. Okay. Um, and, and so first, tell me what it is that I'm doing wrong, and then next, tell me how I should fix it. Well, give tell me what what do they say in the if part? So what I tell them in the if. And then as I try to get them to link their variables. Okay. Yeah. So if I, if I change my independent variable, then this will happen in the dependent variable. And then because, and then they, they link it to a, uh, you know, something that they researched ideally that will go into uh, an introduction right up. Sure. Sure. So, so you, you got the, the, you got the whole package Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a pretty classic way to, to, to have students write hypotheses. Um, so you've got, if I do this, then this will happen because this is how the world works. Yep. Um, and, and so I, my, um, my argument against that form is, is that, um, many teachers drop the because mm-hmm. and, and they just teach the, the classic if then, um, and, and they call that the hypothesis. Now, your hypothesis is in your because statement. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think in a, um, in, in a, a, a logical thinking um, procedure, you, you start out with the hypothesis you're testing. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's how I think the world works. Here's, here, here's, a, here's an observation I've made. Here's a question I've asked about that observation. Here's my tentative answer on trial, which is the hypothesis. Okay, mm-hmm. I think this is how the world works. Um, and, and then you, you design an experiment to test that claim and, and you make a prediction um, based on the specific methods you're going to use and the, the results you plan to, to measure. Um, and so I think that going with if then because 
puts the hypothesis at the end of the thought process. My daughter's taken off. Um, <laughs> spend the day with a friend. See you later. Okay. Um, so, uh, so, so anyway, uh, it's, I, I, I think that at least at the, at the level where our students are right now in high school, um, and, and even of course, back in middle school and even elementary school, they, I think it's helpful if they keep all of those parts separate. Um, and, and so, so I have my students, they, they read a research question and if they're mm -hmm. doing hypothesis testing, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes yeah. they're just doing discovery science. Uh, yeah. They're just making observations, and the, and and their hypotheses come at the end about you know why they think they made these observations. They may never test those hypotheses, but um, but at least they're they're launching them at the end. So so I I, I have my students um, write very specific statements and label them research question. Uh, mm -hmm. hypothesis, um, prediction, and, and, uh, and, and just keep them separate so they can see these are very different ideas that, that, they're, that they're all using together to, to, um, to do science. So what you're saying is that because statement is the hypothesis yeah. and the if-then is the prediction. Exactly. It's the, yeah, it's a, it's a method followed by a, a, a prediction, yeah. Because yeah. the if so is the if, method, your plan yeah. test. So, um, yeah, I was thinking about why, you know, why do I do the if then? Because I, it, you know, just as you said, drop the hypothesis. In fact, my students right now are doing a lab um, and uh, I took the hypothesis out of the rubric. And um, it was with a little bit of a challenge from some of my colleagues who we taught with the first time I did it. Um, we are doing uh, the GMO testing. Mm -hmm. um, so what they're doing is they're, you know, they brought in foods and they're grinding them up and extracting the DNA. And then we, um, you know, do PCR and probe for some specific sequences to see if they're genetically modified ingredients. Wow. In there, we follow up with the gel and we look at the bands. That's fair. so. Um, That's great. Yeah. So what I said to the you know to my colleagues when I was first coming up to lab, I think the first year we did it, we had a hypothesis statement in there, and I I tried to shoehorn a hypothesis statement in there, and we got done. I was like, man, these hypotheses are terrible. These are not like they don't know. They have no real reason to know it unless somebody else already did this experiment. Which why would they pick something? in that case. And I was like, we should just get rid of it and just add more background research into some, you know, like have them write out a more thorough introduction about, you know, the background of this material, redistribute those points. But I felt like the hypothesis was really kind of pointless because it was yeah. discovery science. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah. And, and, and there are, but, but there are teachers who you think, you know, you've got to shove a hypothesis in there because that's how science works. No. <laughs> yeah. We're not, we're, we, we it, there, there is a lot of hypothesis testing, but there's also tons of, of science discovery. This is from uh, my episode with Chi Klein, episode 14. Looking at the professional development offerings that you've been involved over the past couple of years, um, you know, presenting workshops on scientific literature and writing and um, and it, it strikes me that like literacy seems to be a theme that runs through, you know, at least a handful of the workshops you've been involved in. I guess the question is, is this from some of the interdisciplinary work or school-wide work, or is this a personal interest? Um, is it fair to say that literacy is a theme that you've been working on, and, and where's the drive for that? It's a little bit of each of the things you've mentioned, yeah. um, and that's just having the opportunity. So uh, 
for example, Howard Hughes Medical Institute, HHMI, mm -hmm. they asked uh, about some of these things that, uh, um, that you just mentioned that would be interesting for me. And I bet because, yes, that's definitely uh, a goal of mine with my own students, but also in terms of general biology, I feel as if, you know, with the, the political climate, with the things that in terms of climate change, in terms of evolution, the conversations that are cut short because people shut down science mm -hmm. or any discussion of scientific findings, um, part of that is because they're either not exposed to it in a way that is palatable or that they can understand. And I think we need to kind of bridge that gap where they look at a research study and they don't glaze over because, oh, I don't understand that. It's easy to dismiss things that you don't understand. Um, so I think that literacy is really important. I still make my students, I shouldn't say make, I still <laughs> assign um, readings from the textbook. I still assign readings from journal articles or, um, you know, second semester more so than first semester. First semester, we're just shoring out their foundation uh, so that they can understand some of the science they'll be reading uh, in second semester. Uh, but I think that if we can make it more palatable, um, and I, that's why I love writers such mm -hmm. as uh, Catherine Schultz, uh, Carl Zimmer, um, Ed Young, because they make it you know, just understandable for the public mm -hmm. where it's not this scary thing or not even scary, but just like, oh, well, that doesn't make sense. So it must not be true, you know, or if you don't understand it, you can just ignore it. Uh, so I think that literacy is definitely something that we need to continue to help the general public um, and starting with the generation that we have and build on that. So in the future, they can be informed citizens making decisions based on their understanding or things that they seek out, that they'll seek out the information rather than just hearing about something. We recently, of course, had the whole fake news versus mm -hmm. real news uh, discussions. Yeah. You know, they'll seek it out. So, or that they'll, they'll look for the evidence and, and believe multiple pieces of evidence rather than, okay, well, this one is wrong, so then everything else must be wrong. Uh, <laughs> less than 1% of climate change data yeah. versus the over 99%. <laughs> well, it, it, you speak to sort of several different levels of literacy. And the, you know, I think of, you know, a book like, you know, Ed Young's uh, book where that's definitely written for, you know, n not the research scientist and versus breaking down journal articles, which is a you know, much more in-depth, um, you know, form of, of literacy that you would apply for, you know, an AP bio kid or a kid who's going to go off to, to college and need to break down journal articles. Um, I think of it as a continuum. I guess my question is, um, I love doing the readings with my students. I, in fact, was just, uh, I do a historical journal club assignment with my AP bio students right after break where they, um, I give them be the original articles from Beetle and Tatum and Hershey and Chase and, uh, we do a little jigsaw activity with that, and I give them the original articles. Uh, I think that's great. I guess my question is, when we think about it as a continuum of skills, and we start with sort of those younger kids, um, do you see any of the, the cross-connections that, that you see with other teachers or other departments where 
uh, there's a common language to literacy that you're applying? Um, I think so. At our school, uh, it's a pretty big deal in mm -hmm. terms of writing, in terms of across across disciplines. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in terms of most of the kids that we have as ninth grade biology students, mm -hmm. most of those students are not going to be scientists. So we need to expose them at least enough where they, even if they're not at the high level, when they hear about something that they can discern whether or not, okay, where's the source? What's the source? Um, it's one study. Does one study tell us anything? Uh, has it been replicated? You know, things like that. Um, so, yes, I am speaking on multiple levels, but I think it's important at multiple levels. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think at our school, there's a we do a, a fairly decent job because writing and, and reading are still very important. Um, but in terms of nationwide, uh, I think we need to do a little bit of a better job. Um, and I don't know how that works. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the NGSS standards, are, the, those are a great starting point uh, in terms of the practices at the younger levels. I'm not concerned about our AP and IB students as much as I am with those who are not going to be, which is a majority of yeah. you know, students who are entering or have to take bio, physics, chemistry, in whatever order. Yeah. Um, they're not going to be scientists, but they need to be at least, I don't know, not, not knowledgeable is not the word, but um, receptive, yeah. I would say to learning about science or at least reading about science before they make decisions that affect all of us. Here is my conversation with Lee Ferguson from episode 15, even though she didn't quite remember this recording. So yes. a few years ago, you started uh, a professional learning community uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And um, uh -huh. I, I'm really curious in that because I actually, when I started teaching AP four or five years ago, um, there was an existing group. It was hosted by a center out near where I live in uh, central Massachusetts. And then they lost funding a couple of years ago. Um, and even before that, like just because of their location, the times, the numbers of people who were coming to the meetings kept dropping mm -hmm. and dropping. And like it was a combination of a lack of funding. And I think that they were not getting great numbers, partly because mm -hmm. of location and, and not necessarily getting the word out and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, like how you pulled together this network and, okay. and what is it that you do in this network if, okay. of teachers? Well, um, the group was started, I'm going to be real honest, for purely selfish reasons. Um, <laughs> yeah. At the time, I was the solo AP bio teacher in my school. And being a one high school district, I could also then say I was the only one in the district. <laughs> um, and at the time, you know, we were getting ready to undergo the redesign. Yeah. And like most other teachers at the time, I was concerned. I'm like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to implement this curriculum framework? Oh my gosh, I've got to teach all this math and, and I don't even know how to do half of this stuff. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I, um, you know, I remembered that there was a group up in the Northeast, I guess, New York, Pennsylvania area that um, I want to say it was David Kanofke and mm -hmm. Uh, the late Kim Foglia mm -hmm. and uh, Lynn Mariello, I guess now she's going by Mariello, um, that those three had been, and Sherilyn Hollinger, 
mm-hmm. uh, that those four actually had been kind of the nucleus of the group that started in the Northeast. And they got together in the summertime and got together at one of their homes and, you know, had food and, and <laughs> basically sat and sat around and talked shop for the whole day and, and shared, you know, resources with each other and all of this. And I was like, you know what, I want to do something like that down here. And I bet we could do it. So I put out a, I put out a call on the, uh, the college board community, mm-hmm. like, Hey, you know, if there's a group of people in the Dallas Fort Worth area that are interested in this, I would really like to start something similar to this. And, you know, um, a couple of friends of mine who are readers said, Hey, you know, we're interested, let's do this. Well then BFW, the publisher got wind of what we wanted to do. And they're like, Hey, we'll provide you a place. We'll bring you goodies. You just get the people to show up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that first summer after the reading, uh, BFW actually rented uh, part of the Botanical Gardens, a meeting room nice. at the Botanical Gardens in Fort Worth for us and brought all kinds of books and, and breakfast for us. And we, the group of us that were readers, sat down with about 20 other teachers and we said, okay, here's the framework. Here's, what's, here's what we've been told at that time yeah. you need to focus on. You know, focus on this, not this. Focus on this, not this. You know, here's what the redesign exam is going to kind of look like maybe. And and here are the things your students are going to have to know how to do. And so it kind of started off like that. Yeah. Then, you know, after that, um, we we decided, you know, as a as a group, okay, well, we want to do this again. Well, when do we want to do it? How often do we want to meet? Where do we want to do this? And so what we started doing was we started meeting at all of our respective campuses. We kind of rotate around. And so we've met at, you know, private schools, we've met at an alternative campus, we've met, you know, at smaller high schools, we've met at large high schools, Um, but it's generally the same group of teachers every time. And so every, you know, and and we've had several new people come in and out, Um, but it's basically teacher-developed, teacher-driven professional development. Yeah. Um, You know, we sit down and we figure out, okay, what do we want to talk about? Let's talk about this. Okay. So it's sort of like the ed camp model. a little bit, um, you know, and we've continued the tradition of having breakfast and, and all of this. And, you know, cause we usually meet from nine to three on the days that we do it. Um, and you know, it's just a bunch of teachers getting together to, to sit down and talk shop. I mean, that's, that's really what it's, what it's become. And it, it's funny. You would think it's like, why are these people getting together just to sit down and talk? Because we don't get the chance to do it otherwise, <laughs> Yeah, you know? You know, our schools don't provide us the opportunity to do that, even within districts where there are multiple AP teachers. You know, from what I'm what, what I've heard from my colleagues that teach in districts where there are multiple campuses, they don't have that opportunity to talk with their colleagues about, oh, here's the stuff that we're doing and and this and that. And 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 so they don't get that opportunity. You know, I'm lucky in that my district allows us that chance. You know, we we actually do get professional development time devoted to sitting down and collaboratively planning, which is really nice now that I have a partner, because for the first several years that we did that, I didn't have a partner. I was twiddling my thumbs. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Collaboratively plan with myself? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but so and so the, the really nice thing is that this network of individuals, you know, this network of teachers is a great support system, you know, because we share resources, um, you know, with one another. You know, it's a support system, especially for brand new teachers. You know, we get a lot of every year, you know, the, we, we get some brand new teachers who come in and they're just poor things. They're so scared because they're like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do this. This framework yeah. is so good. <laughs> and, and, 
and we 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 kind of talk them off the ledge and be like, look, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, it's, yes, it's going to be hard, but it's not impossible. Look at all these fabulous things that we can share with you to make your life easier. And so, you know, we 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 do end up being you know a support system for each other, which is really really nice. Yeah. And so, you know, it's funny we we've got people from outside of the state that have wanted to come <laughs> to our meetings. And actually we've had some folks down from, um, from Austin that yeah. have come to our meetings before, because they're like, there's nothing like this in the Austin area. And we really want to come. Okay. Come on up. You know, we would love to have you, yeah. you know? And so there, there are a couple of groups of people who wanted to start something similar in their area. They just haven't done it yet. Yeah. Well, I will and, tell you, there's times you posted it. And I'm like, damn, I wish I could go to that. <laughs> Be a little well, bit of a yeah, commute. It's a, it's a model that I wish we could replicate in other places. Yeah. I just don't know how to go about doing it. Yeah. You know, I would love to see, you know, something that's completely driven by teachers, completely organized by teachers, you know, providing, you know, professional learning opportunities for teachers, for their peers. You know, I just don't know how to replicate that model. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's, it's something I've wanted to give a talk about. I just don't know how to frame the talk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I really don't. I'm like, well, what would I talk about? I don't know. <laughs> Here's a clip from episode 16 with Paul Anderson. It's I, not, I think it would have been, for me, it would have been amazing when I was starting, especially teaching AP of just seeing another perspective from another teacher. Yeah. Um, Cause a lot of it is, we all know that dance you do at night where you go home and I got to get ready for tomorrow. And I really fully don't understand whatever gene <laughs> maps and I have to figure this out and it's three hours <laughs> later and you think you have it, but it would have been nice. I think for me to, yeah, to seeing somebody else's spin on it. Um, I think that's a lot of what teaching is. If it can open up a door so you can see it in a way that you maybe couldn't see it before. I think there's that. And, and for me, you've heard me whine about this forever. I love it when kids come to it, you know, on their own, like they were stuck and they yeah. discovered a video and that like meeting kids like that. It's amazing. Cause they really, you helped them through a dark time that one day before <laughs> the test. Well, and I will say your, your NGSS videos, uh, particularly on the practices were that way for me where uh -huh. I, I feel like it took me multiple rounds before I started to really understand the NGSS. Like my right. first reaction was, what are these really giant confusing tables? Uh, <laughs> yeah, what, no, it's what, awful. What's yeah. with all the colors and what's with all the boxes? And I don't understand what that. And we don't right. do common core. And I don't understand what. So like I had that sort of first initial overwhelm shutdown. But, you know, talking to a variety of people who mm -hmm. are ahead of Massachusetts, Massachusetts new standards are a twist on them. And we adopted them less than a year ago, um, oh, okay. similar to right. what New York has done. But uh, we do not have the cross-cutting concepts. Uh, so we're only a two-dimensional, if you want to think about gotcha. it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, but we were late to adopt. And so I started having conversations with friends of mine who teach in California or for other places. And they would just, everyone says just wonderful things about the next-gen science standards. And I'm like, all right, well, if all these people I know and respect who are really good teachers look at these and are working with them and are saying wonderful things, then I am just being like bullheaded if I don't take another shot at it. And I know I went through several right. of your videos. Uh, and for me, that was a huge help. So um, in terms of that breakdown. So I, I, for me, I, I definitely agree with you that hearing, having the opportunity to not annoy my friends and say, all right, sit down and explain this. But instead I could watch right. the video on the science mm -hmm. practice uh, and have somebody explain that was really wonderful. So yeah. 
So. No, it's been fun. And it was, it was again, that was, that was totally just, uh, I don't really understand these. I know they're a big deal. I'd gone to a regional NSTA conference and everyone was talking about it. And I oh. felt like I was kind of out of the loop. And so <laughs> I just told somebody there, I'm going to make a set of videos on this. And I, I wish I could go back and do them over obviously, because um, I think my understanding's changed quite a bit since then. But I yeah. think it's it's just it's 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 a good way of learning, I think, of yeah. trying to assemble it and trying to to speak to someone else. I think I'd seen a it was a YouTube video I saw recently of the Feynman method of learning. I don't know. It was one of those uh, an animated kind of a YouTube. I'll try to find a link for it. But mm -hmm. it was that's that's how Richard Feynman said he would the best way to learn was to try to explain it to other people. And I, I totally agree with that. I think all teachers say that same thing. Yeah. I didn't really know it until I had to teach it. Yeah. So that means something must be going on. Yeah. I know I've definitely been changing my classroom to increase the amount of time that my students explain things to one another right. and in small groups, as opposed to, you know, the stand and deliver method that we, we all started with where here's my notes and I'm standing in front of the board and I'm talking, uh, definitely breaking that down because you learn so much as a teacher by teaching that having the students, you know, micro scale break down and talk about those little pieces is so powerful. So. Yeah, I think I mean, it's just like learning. It's like learning a new language. And, you know, <laughs> man, I took so many Spanish classes, never learned to speak Spanish. And I would always be thrown into situations when we were in South America where I really got to jump in and try this. And yeah. every time you did, you would you would you would pick up a lot. Yeah. Um, but we don't give them an opportunity to do that enough in our science classes. I yeah. Think. I didn't. Yeah. Here's a clip from episode 17 on Super Bowl Sunday with Bob Kuhn. So I do know that when you have presented recently, and I know also you know, you've done a lot of HHMI things, so that sort of brings me into the, my next uh, my next question, which is uh, the data points resources, which um, it's funny because, you know, it, I was in there and I actually used the data points when I was uh, when I was writing my mid-year for one of my mid-years. I was plucking a couple of the couple of the couple of the images and uh, and a couple of the backgrounds uh, to write some questions in there. But I'm curious about, you know, the data point resources and how how do you get involved with making these resources and how do you go through the process of creating these? Well, uh, originally, um, HHMI were thinking about doing something with data because they felt like with the statistics, um, there was a need for for that. And then people were saying that, you know, resources of data out there for teachers to get a handle, handle on um, were limited. So they decided to do this series. In the beginning, it was just going to be maybe 12, and I think they're going to do it every year now. But uh, so really, it, it's an interesting process. You know, not a lot of us have um, access to these professional journals unless they're the free ones online. And that was one motivator, I think, was to make the data more accessible. So sort of the rules are that, um, so every summer um, I sit down, uh, I have a, um, a, a colleague, um, Natalie Dutro, who is a KSTF fellow, who's also an HHMI ambassador. She's helping me now on it, uh, or we're working together, I should say. And so what we do is we sit down and get some input from HHMI um, about any resources they want us to focus on. But they really give us a lot of latitude to scour sort of the, the, the current journals and look for figures and, and interesting um, articles that people might like, try to keep it a, a, as diverse um, as we can. 
as long as it fits into the HHMI sort of themes. And then we put together sort of a slideshow of the figure and our explanation about why we think it's important and what, what is in the figure. And then we, we send them the PowerPoint and they take it to the board and they all talk about which ones they think are good or we should wait on. And then they send us a list of about 12 or 13. And we just, um, we have a timeline and we knock them out during the year and they, and they publish them. So um, I, I think professionally for me, it's great because it, the data points are a, a wide variety of analysis. There are things that I like, data analysis that I don't usually come across that I have to sort of learn and figure out. And you also get exposed to everything from cell biology all the way up to ecology. So it keeps you current and, and really excited about what's out there because it's easy as a classroom teacher to just, you know, you're so focused on your classroom to forget that there is science out there and, and, you know, it, it's hard to find. So. Yeah. So when you, so like, it sounds like it's a funnel process. So to get down to that, say dozen, how many different, yeah, how, how many different things are you proposing to get down to that dozen? Are we like 30 different, you know? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, 30. 25, 30. Yeah. So. And then every once in a while they'll say, you know, we have a resource that or a short film or something that's coming out. Um, you know, can you try to find something that sort of goes along with this idea? Yeah. So we did that with, um, there was one uh, short film that involved a scientist who studied bats and, mm -hmm. uh, and moths, and they were looking for some sort of echolocation type data point to go with that. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's hard because the, you can't, besides science, you have to look at the, journals that are free yeah. because you can't just start grabbing people's work and start taking their figures and talking about them. So it's gotta be it is inter yeah. interesting to see, like for the echolocation, I really, really wanted to look for something on um, elephants and, and the communicate, the old, you know, the low sonic communication, but it was really hard. I mean, I, I couldn't find anything out there that was really uh, appropriate. So Sometimes you don't really get what you want. But. Yeah, I'm curious what will happen as, you know, there's all this talk about uh, you, we've got PLOS and we've got a few other free ones like MBio and, um, you know, MSphere, which are from the, you know, the ASM journals that they have the free ones that they put out there. But there's also like the BioArchive, uh, the preprint servers that are going out there, which seem also, you know, they'll be, I'm curious to see how, you know, with journaling, online communication, how some of this thing, how some of these things might change. Um, I tend to use PLOS a lot for my students when I have, I have a couple of assignments where I have my AP students break down journal articles and I pretty much say, yeah, go to PLOS, you know, start your search there. And cause you know, those are going to be free and they're going to be available. Um, but it, it'll be curious to see how, I think there's, there's definitely discussion about whether or not, you know, whether or not we should have more accessibility or whether or not there should be more journals like PLOS. Uh, but I think the funding component is really hard. It costs a lot of money to put something out that isn't behind a paywall. Um, yeah. Right. So. And um, I, I think, you know, there's also a growing body of data out there for teachers now. Um, most people have known about the, um, What's the other data site? It's not data points. Data but it's, nuggets. Uh, nuggets yeah. is really good. 
And then um, one of the things that drove this year's selection was HHMI has a partnership with Science uh, AAS, mm -hmm. um, Science in the Classroom. And that resource is fantastic because when you go to that resource, there's a, it's actually a close reading um, website where you can highlight specific things in the articles mm -hmm. and they've really broken down the figures. So what we try to do is go and do some of those, these data points to have like a crossover between the two things. So um, that was pretty cool. But I guess in spirit, the idea is to take data and make it accessible for teachers so that they can use it in some way in the classroom. So, yeah. And so I guess this leads to, to me asking for you. Um, I found that since we've done the, the new AP, I've had a lot of focus about how to work math in and how to work data into my classroom. And now I'm sort of puzzling over the, how do I get it into the other science classrooms in there? So, um, you know, are you using this as an entry point for you, your students, or do you tend to use more, you know, student generated data for the data discussion? Or do you find that it's a blend of using, you know, data and data manipulation and sort of that computational thinking with your students? Where, where do you get the, the bulk of your, your data for discussions with kids? Well, I mean, there's classic data stuff that like, like, for example, the, the Finchbeak mm -hmm. graphs that are just fantastic right yeah they're not going to be able to replicate anything like that even if they do some sort of activity in the classroom so there there's stuff like that that is sort of priceless but you know um the data collection that you can do in class especially if you have three or four classes of the same mm -hmm. you can really if you do multiple trials you can really get a pretty good set of data and you know what i find is the kids have been conditioned I don't, you know, I'm not going to blame another grade or anything like that, but I think over time they've been conditioned that the experiment is the fun part, but really my experience in science, the experiment was the nerve wracking part. <laughs> yeah. The, the data was the fun part because you're figuring out what it all means. And so when we collect data in the classroom, there's this tendency for my students anyway, to sort of try to blow off the data and, and say, oh, well, the experiment's done. We had a great time with it. And I'm, I'm always like, no, I mean, now we have to analyze and see what's going on. And, uh, and so, yeah, we use a lot of student data. I'll use, um, I'll give one class, the other classes data and have them try to figure it out. Mm -hmm. I'll give them options where they can use their table groups data. They could use their classes data, or they could use all, let's say all three classes worth of data and they can see how the data changes. The problem is, is, is time. Um, you know, if I had a methods class or if I had uh, 90 minutes a day, I could, I could really get into it with them. But when we go down these rabbit holes, I have to sort of bring them back a little bit because just because of time and, and that's kind of unfortunate, but, but then the good news is I keep the data. Um, so I have them year after year. So then even though it's not the same, let's say like leaf discs or whatever, you have a data set you can pull and you can actually generate things like quiz questions, yeah. test questions based on your own students' data. And I think that's really fun, you know, that you can say this isn't made up, this is stuff you all did, so.
Here's a clip from my conversation with Ryan Reardon on episode 18. Yeah, and you're doing that through an inquiry approach, it sounds like. I'm in an engagement approach. Yeah, and I I'll, think. Yeah, I, I, that, I, it hasn't always been that way. Um, that was, this okay. is this is self critique. Um, okay. I went to a very, uh, a, pro, a, a, a an approach I wasn't proud of. I went to an approach of, this is the content of the exam. Let's pound the content. Let's get them ready. And I did go to that approach first. But mm -hmm. I have evolved with that group as my dissatisfaction with that. Every year since I was, I, I gain a little more confidence every year. Like, all right, mm -hmm. I can slam content and get them through. Well, what if I don't slam quite as much content through and instead we do these other things? And a couple of years ago, I sat back and said, what's the one thing missing? And I said, these kids really are not. These kids are taking a history of science class. They're not taking a science class. They're yeah. learning what everyone learned about science in the past. They do not learn the process of science. Now, our current state exam doesn't test the process of science. Mm -hmm. um, the next one will because it's very next-gen oriented. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's been, that was a, a good kick in the pants. It, it worked together with me. I was in that place, and now I'm starting to turn the curriculum to get ready for that, that piece. So. Yeah. I, I did uh, my first year. Hey, real quick, Aaron. Hey, uh, Anakin. Would you bring me that sphere that's hanging in the window, man? When you get a second, I want to show you something—a model that I've generated. <laughs> pull it off the pull it off the string. Just bring it over, man. Uh, my first year here at the at the IB school, we're can, we're a school within a school, but we're 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 a pull out building mm -hmm. next door to full service six A high school and biggest you know thousand kids, uh, mostly inner city, and we used to have an old uh, grad exam. Now the kids take the ACT and they bomb it. I mean, the most kids, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but we used to have the, the Alabama graduation uh, exam was the biology exam. And so my first year here, my principal was like, what do you think about teaching these uh, remedial classes? And I said, you know, hey, great runners can run a 5K and they can run a marathon. I know <laughs> I can teach the these kids that have really, really aren't good at school. And so I got two sections of botany and zoology, which was really just remediation, kids who had failed this exam at least twice. And uh, I can remember first day, Elijah Quinteris, he's sitting in there going, rocking back and forth in the stool going, hey, man, what's this Bhutani? I was like, what? What's this Bhutani? I said, what do you mean? He said, on my schedule, it says Bhutani. I'm like, no, dude, that's botany. Botany. Don't even worry about it. We're, this, is, we're, this is biology class. We're going to get you rocking on the grad exam. But I did all inquiry with those kids, you know, uh, just the constant going back to graphing a piece of a chunk of data, doing lab work because these kids weren't good at school. They'd flag the exam. They, they had they had data to suggest that they weren't getting it the normal way. Right. So it's like, well, that's not going to work the third time. So let's just do some lab work and try and teach them some science. My buddy Debbie Anderson down the hall said, I said, what do I do with these kids? She goes, just teach them to love science. Mm -hmm. You know, and we, I got 65% of those kids to pass our state exam. Uh, and the kids that didn't pass were, many of them were learning disabled, a couple learning disabled with, uh, and ESL. I mean, it was sort of with, I love that term school avoidance. I mean, there was some real barriers for a lot of those kids, but I got 65% of, uh, 45 of them to pass and they'd never done it before. Yeah. And one of the things we sat down with the old grad exam and looked at, you know, based on the the midterms and the finals they'd taken for me, we said, okay, well, where are the gaps? Where can you make the most ground up so you can pass this thing and move on with your life? And they, they responded to that. Yeah. Uh, 
I capped this thing about a year ago. I just went outside between the buildings. I grabbed some moss and threw it in this uh, round bottom flask. Yep. Stuck a number seven stopper on it and hung it in the window. And it is, I, I think the moss is doubled in size, but it's got its own hydrologic cycle. It's got its own carbon cycle. The whole thing is there. This is just a beautiful system. A close, well, it's, the IB would say it's open. It's open to energy, but close to material. Yep. And it's just cycling, man. And uh, that's sort of a poor man's Winogradsky column. So you've got some cool oxidation of the, of the, of the irons and the clay is happening on the bottom. But uh, my kids just sit there and just kind of goof on it when they're, you know, they get bored. They stare out the window. They've got cool stuff to look at. But that's 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 a cool approach. I think it'll really pay off. You know? Yeah. Well, it was funny because I actually was having that thought. Um, I was having that thought just the other day. I uh, I pulled together a um, some of those AAAS assessment questions and I gave them a quiz on it uh, just to sort of see where they were. Uh, it's a little bit of a mix of like it's sort of a mid process kind of quiz. And um, I threw on a bunch of the questions about photosynthesis and cell respiration that we haven't gotten to yet. Mm-hmm. Like we're gonna get there. I know where we're going. But I just wanted to check in. And, you know, they, they did pretty well on them because we've been talking about sort of, we talked about those fundamentals and we talked about, you know, what's going on with the Winogradsky columns and what do we expect to happen. And uh, the kids were kind of excited today because uh, they came in. I had a couple kids who were, you know, as you can hear from my voice, it's, you know, cold season around here, pretty hard. Um, a couple of kids who missed school and they came in and now the, that algae layer uh, the photosynthetic um, aerobic algae is starting to form on the very top of the Winogradskys, but mm-hmm. it's only in the ones that we added sulfur to. The one that, right. so we so we did a, just one that was just mud, um, and mm-hmm. then we did one that was mud plus carbon, so we used newspaper, and then we did mud plus sulfur, which was an egg yolk, um, and then oh, we cool. and then we did uh, and this is all this is an H I pulled I stole the HHMI one, yeah. and then I did the egg yolk and the newspaper, and the two that have sulfur in them. Use the same water. I took uh, some pond water. The the two that have sulfur have uh, an algae layer right now. This is two weeks in, so very cool. Yeah, it's, it's it's super cool. So the kids were like, "Wait, those they're different," and they could tell it were a little different. Like the egg gave like a whitish hue to the top of them mm-hmm. last time they did mm-hmm. them, but they were like, last time we collected data, it was the one week in. They're like, these you know these ones are clear, these ones are cloudy. Is that it? I was like, well, we're gonna watch these for two months. Don't worry about it. And the kids came in. They saw them in the windowsill. They're like. They're like, oh, those are cool. Those are green. So, so are they measuring the depth of each band or the number of bands? Or? Um, you know what? I don't know yet. <laughs> I'm having yeah. them do sketch. I'm having them like uh, collect, um, uh, basically qualitative uh, uh, observations at this point. Um, mm-hmm. I've never taken this particular approach, so it's gonna be. It's learning for me too. Uh, I don't yeah, know. Man. So I'm just, I always find it when I'm excited about what's gonna go on. They're excited, so. Well, I'll tell you, here's a good one. I mean, I don't know if if, if I get off the topic to say, hey, man, we got to stick to the script. But uh, no script. One of the th- <laughs> I hear one of the things that I would love to do with kids like that, especially when when you guys warm up and if you've got a little glade or a forest, you know, some tree, a, a treat area. Mm-hmm. I took out, you know, Strode would love this, man, because it's a hypothesis. <laughs> here's a hypothesis: moss grows on the north side of the tree. Right. That's the idea, because it's it's it, well, I don't tell the kids why, but that's the hypothesis. Let's go test that. And so we set up a tree. Uh, we kind of decide, you know, basically cardinal direction north will be 12 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And then we depending on the, the, the diameter of the tree or the, or the you know the circumference of the tree, I should say, DBA diameter breast height and thinking about how wide that tree is. We're instead of one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock, six, like points around the clock. And then I have these little I built little. uh quadrats out of a manila folder you know like 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters Mm -hmm. 
and they, they, we find the base of the tree and they take their quadrat out and they put it at the base of the tree. And if it's, they have to determine how much living plant material is inside that quadrat and then what's the diversity of the plant material, right? So you've got usually moss growing at the base of these trees. Uh, the sunnier, it turns out down here on the eastern side of, uh, it's actually, yeah, it's on the, it's on the eastern side. No, it's the western side of these trees here. You get these long sunsets at my building, so they just get pummeled with sunlight in the afternoon. Plus, the the kids figured out the building's just to the south of or the north of them, so the heat radiating off the building is sort of drying out one side of the tree. But you've got this, you've got a, you've got a total, you've got like this barren desert of moss on one half of the tree, and then 100% moss on the other side. And what they notice is that when you get to the peak diversity density diversity goes down but it's at those little ecotones where you where you've got enough it's just cool enough it's just wet enough to where there's opportunities for organisms to grow you may not have 100 percent coverage inside that quadrat but you've got maximum diversity here's a conversation with chris baker back on episode 21 one of the things I, you know, I always do my internet stalking before I do my uh, my calls to people. <laughs> and uh, in my internet stalking of you, I found an article from uh, a Philadelphia news sta- station from uh, like a year or two ago where they were talking about using smartphones in the classroom. And I, I know from, you know, Twitter and, and various other places, you, you really use technology quite a bit in your classroom. Um, so I, I'm kind of curious, how did your view of the use of technology in school uh, evolve over the years because I, I certainly know that when you started out uh, there weren't smartphones and you know Google and Twitter and all that stuff when, you know when you started teaching so how has it evolved um, over time well it's funny it's actually kind of gone like a pendulum swung one way swung the other way and I'm currently kind of in the middle so when I started teaching it was about 10 years ago in uh, in 06 um, 06, I started at Hapro Horsham. It was my first full-time uh, teaching uh, job. They hired me as a long-term sub uh, second semester, and they um, and it was an opening, so I got hired um, for a contract position. And about a year later, I was teaching bio, and um, one of the, uh, the my department chair and I we decided that the um, the kids that were having trouble, um, the like not at-risk kids, but there were kids that were having trouble in some of the lower-level bio classes, and we thought, and we had a grant. Uh, we got a whole bunch of computers uh, in in Pennsylvania, a whole bunch of laptops, and we thought at the time, hey, wouldn't that be great? These kids are always on their phones. They love technology. They're playing Xbox and and and, um, and we and all that. Put a computer in front of them. The learning is going to be fantastic. They're going to love it. So we spent hours and days, and we were up till one o'clock every morning revising the curriculum, and it's totally bombed. Uh, it was uh, it was a disaster as far as um, as far as the students really weren't that engaged. Um, it really wasn't that interesting for them. There were all kinds of tech issues, um, so that kind of left a sort of bitter taste in my mouth for a while. Um, I've swung by, I've swung back and forth a couple of times, but right now um, I really need, I really want students to use technology if it's going to help them learn. Um, I don't use technology for the sake of um, for the sake of using tech, um, we were um, a, one of the six one-to-one pilot teachers um, in our high school building this year. Um, next uh, next year, we're planning to deploy one-to-one um, devices, and there are a couple of devices that we're field testing now. And I told the I told the administrators, um, I said that's great. You know, I really appreciate being um, one of those teachers, but 
I'm not going to center my lessons around uh, technology. I don't want the kids to be sitting in front of their laptops or Chromebooks or whatever it is 24 seven. Uh, it's just not my style. Um, I don't think it's that, that effective for me. Okay. So, um, so right now, uh, the ki uh, students can bring in, um, I don't confiscate phones or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, I do know some of my colleagues have, uh, it's like the, those shoe, uh, those <laughs> shoe pocket things that you hang yep. from the back of the door. Uh, they've got those for cell phones. And if that works for them, great. Uh, personally, it makes me cringe, to be honest with you. Um, the way I look at it is I teach 16, 17, 18 year olds. They're going to be paying $70,000 a year next year to go to college. Um, if they better learn their responsibility now, Con and in my view, confiscating phones, um, really it, it's, it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy. Um, and if they want to use their phones for something educational, great. Even if it's not educational, you know what? It's better they learn it now while they're, um, they're in high school for free then um then learn a tough lesson in college so uh, to get back to your question i um they use their cell phones um just about every day and we dissect they take video they take pictures uh it's some of the students make their google slides presentations strictly on their phones they don't have to upload their pictures to the drive or anything they do everything on their phones so i think um uh, i think phone i think tech has come a long way i think um my students use it pretty effectively um in addition, we do some case studies where I provide them with a, a fictional patient scenario and I give them a little bit of information at a time and they have to ask the right questions at the right time in order for um, either me or the student who's pretending to be the patient who's pre-programmed to give them any information. So at times I'll, I'll say the patient's on XYZ medication and the students will look at me and now they know, quick, whip out your phone, look up that medication and they can figure out what the medical problem of the patient is based on the medication generally. Yeah. So that's pretty much the way uh, we use tech in the, in the classroom. Here's my conversation with Chris Monsoor from episode 23. I always yeah. felt that science, uh, the thing that always got me excited about doing science in college was it was a puzzle. Like you had to sit down and like, you had to come up with a question and you had to ask the right questions and you could go down the wrong path. And there's so much of that that is like working in the classroom. You know, yeah. how do we get the kids to engage with this exciting topic that you're passionate about? There's a puzzle to that. Um, and, it, and trying to figure out what's, what's the best way to do it. You know, photosynthesis respiration may not be the most exciting thing for the kids. I love it, but I've got to figure out a way to make it accessible and make it understandable. And because a lot of times when I get, when the kids get to me, for whatever reason, science is workbook and death by PowerPoint sometimes. And so trying to break that, you know, break that learning style, you know, turning it into that puzzle and them seeing that, yeah, you're, you know, I always share with my students, like most of my research failed, like, but, you know, I, I, I would have loved to figure out some of these problems that I had, but, but that was the process of science and it's not memorization. It's, it's a process. So yeah, I love, I, it's all, it's a puzzle every day. I walk in, I'm like, what kids am I going to get today? What's going to be their mood? And what am I going to try to get covered? So yeah, I completely agree with the puzzle. Yeah. And then, you know, same deal. Like you can have those days where you're driving home and you're shaking your head because, you know, you just spent, you know, eight hours, you know, running all this experiments to get nothing on the gel, or you could just spend eight hours trying to have kids learn to understand something. And you've looked at these tests and it's like, man, they didn't get it. So I think, I think the, the highs and lows are very similar, uh, on both. Yeah. Ends. 
and one of the major thing is when I work with new students, it's like, or pre-service teachers, like you've got to be reflective. Mm-hmm. You've got to see what worked. Because as science, we always go back through and refine our experiments. We look for, and I go, as, as a teacher, you've got to go back and like, even after 18 years, I go back and I look at, okay, what worked, what didn't I have to refine this? I just can't pull the stuff out of the folder from last year and expect it to work again. So yeah. teaching is kind of like an inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. And I was looking at, I was just looking at survey data last night. Um, we do sort of end, the, I do a sort of a quick end of the year survey of my kids and looking last year to this year, you know, what are the areas that, um, you know, and I could, there's a couple of the questions that I ask where it's like, you know, phenomenal responses, you know, and I, I don't dwell on those. It's the one where it's like, you know, why do 30 some odd kids say that I only sometimes do this? Like, why is it that this is the one that's not in line with all the others? What, how could I do this part better? Like, why are the kids not seeing? And I was like, I think I do that, but the kids aren't seeing that. So why, why don't they see it? And that's, that's a hard thing to do. I do surveys too. And people are like, why do you surveys? Like, I got to see what I did, what, what's not working. But that, that's one of the hardest things to do is look back and see like, oh, I'm not doing this. And so I think sometimes um, teaching new teachers, like you have to be reflective and you have to be able to, like the kids are, you're going to be your best critics, but they're also going to be the harshest. So that, that is a, hard thing to sometimes to swallow when you're like, okay, I can do this. So can't take it personal. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, moving on to my next question, although I think we sort of touched in it and you, you answered it. Um, one of the things that you popped out and, um, you know, I think it's, it's fascinating when I look at what you have done in your summers and sort of what I like to do in my summers, I like to work in my summers, any excuse I get to get at a lab bench, like that to me, that's like awesome. I got a lab bench, got to hold a pipetter, got to run some gels. That's there. You, you were, you know, you're at doing the NOAA, um, uh, you know, exper- expeditions. You're doing the Earth expeditions. Um, how did you get into these types of trips? And you know, like, how does that sort of bring back into your classroom? Well, I think, well, with Earth expeditions, um, I had signed up. It's through Miami University of Ohio, and they have a series of trips. And I'm actually going to Thailand this summer for Buddhism and conservation. So I'm really looking forward to it. But the reason why I got involved in this field work is because I think to be able to teach science, you still have to do science. And so my training and background was field research, right? So field work. out, And so, you know, I looked for opportunities in the summer to to do research or to go out and experience these things and I bring them back to my classroom because a lot of times my kids small kind of rural area they may not be able to go very far I I tell them one day I'm going to write a book life beyond 224 because 224 is like the highway in town I try to tell my kids there is life beyond 224 there's stuff for you to do out there and so by me bringing in these trips and showing them the pictures and talking about oh yeah when I was working with cheetahs in Namibia it shows to them that oh this guy here in small Tiffin can do that. And so, and so I, being able to bring that research in and being able to incorporate my kids into it and letting them see that, Hey, I was the average kid in high school. I, I probably should have worked harder. I was not the 4.0 when I graduated from college, but I worked very hard and I get to do all these things. And then the teacher at C program, I just, you know, I'm always looking for stuff to do in the summer. I don't do well with idle time. So I like to be busy and keep my mind going. And now when I came across and I spent, 30 days out in the Hawaiian Islands, you know, out in the uh, Northwest Hawaiian Islands tracking um, or tagging lobsters and sharks. So I like to try to do those things to keep me, it's good for my, my psyche too, but yeah, the field work is just amazing. The opportunity to travel around the world and bring these experiences back to the kids. So that's kind of what keeps me grounded and it keeps me still doing science Mm -hmm. as opposed, you know, I do science all year, but 
it's kind of for me, but it also benefits my students. When you when you look at those experiences, are you able to bring back um, data or like case studies or that sort of thing directly for it? Or do you think it's just sort of an extension of um, new insights that help you make connections as you help them make connections? I think it's both because like when I was working with, so I spent some time in Namibia with the cheetahs. And so I teach environmental science and I talk about like in my AP class, we talk about bottleneck effects and those kind of things and genetic drift. I talk about the cheetahs. I was like, okay, so in Namibia, cheetah population is so low. So I kind of bring that back in and we'll do research. We'll do studies. You know, I'll talk about cheetah conservation fund. Um, I was in Australia two summers ago with them and we were on the Great Barrier Reef. So this year I was talking about coral bleaching and I was able to show them my pictures. And then we did, some of the, then I bring, I try to bring a lot of data. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the data sets from HHMI mm -hmm. or data nuggets. So I'll use it. I try to bring in those things to show them, oh yeah, when I was here. So it's kind of both. I try to bring in my own experiences. I try to bring in research. Like the, the research that I'm doing, it's not like publishable. Like we're going out, we're just kind of, we're like working for an organization, help them collect data. I mean, I've, so I, I, it's a mix of both. It really depends on what we're doing at the time. This clip is from the start of year two with Mark Peterson on episode 25. So, I mean, obviously 1985, um, you know, <laughs> there's no internet, um, <laughs> you know, there's no YouTube, uh, there's no, there's no Paul Anderson Bozeman biology. Um, so nope. I, I guess, you know, uh, for me, when I look at you as one of the, you know, major adopters of technology, um, you're actually perfect for this, uh, this question about a flipped classroom. Um, so, you know, when I look at your biography, I see you, you are one of those flipped classroom teachers. You're, you're big on that, but what does that mean to you when you, when you hear the term flipped cl classroom, what does that mean to you, especially with the context of your experience teaching? Okay. Let's go. So I am old. I admit that. So let's, <laughs> if you go back to 1985 and when I started teaching, um, we had, uh, in the biology classroom, you had uh, BSCS textbooks. Mm -hmm. You had the three versions, the red, the green, or the blue, uh, depending on what your school had adopted. And going along with that, you had a, a soft cover uh, bunch of labs. Um, and if you, were, if you were lucky, maybe you had a couple of other um, lab books that came from some other publisher and so with that uh you know that's that's kind of what you got started with um and so you're right there was no internet there were no resources available to share uh to borrow to steal from other people um and i don't know i just i just think that uh back in the back in the early 90s when the internet first began um, I just jumped in. Um, their web browsers were horrible. Uh, you, you got a lot of information from FTP sites uh, and a University of Minnesota product called Gopher that there would be a little animation of the Gopher digging for resources for you. Um, and so I guess I just embraced that. Embrace might be a strong word, but I certainly adopted that way to dig for resources to make my my classroom better um my i have kind of an interesting history with where i'm teaching now because i taught there for nine years 
uh, we moved from the Twin Cities out to a small rural community. Um, I went from teaching AP biology and ecology to suddenly teaching eighth grade uh, earth science. Um, I was a pretty typical stand and deliver lecture guy and quickly found out after a couple of weeks, you can't lecture to eighth graders. You can't focus on content. Um, and at that point in time, I just, uh, I'm like, we, we need to work on process skills. And so we just, I just embraced the process of, of the nature of science. Um, and that really transformed my teaching. That was back in the middle nineties. Um, and so, so fast forward to a few years ago when I found a way to kind of push content out of my classroom so we could do more science in the classroom while I'm there being a resource. That's when uh, flipping my classroom, you know, creating my own my own set of video series uh, with content and, and pushing that out of the classroom for the most part. You know, there's still a lot of content that happens in my classroom, but it certainly has freed up a lot of time for uh, doing science. I mean, in graduate school, when I when I was in graduate school at the University of Iowa in the College of Medicine, uh, we, we just did science. That's what we did. We had to do some reading, some background. You know, we had a model organism. We were working with quail embryos. <laughs> we, we, we did science. We did lots and lots of science. And yeah, if we had questions about, about whatever the resources were, or, or we needed to find out more information about myotube formation, that was my jam back in the day. Uh, then we went to, then we went to the library. Uh, mm -hmm. index medicus and we looked up things and kind of you know the science reader's guide to periodical literature students don't know what that is today but but uh and, and so um that's really kind of those are kind of things that have led me to really try to embrace my students doing a lot of biology in my classroom where i am with my blended classroom flipped learning that's where it's at yeah, so you just used the word uh, blended classroom as well. So I guess the the way you could think about it is you've uh, replaced a lot of the homework from that would have been you know traditional textbook questions or textbook outlines with you know getting some background information so that they're coming loaded to do an experiment to build a model to do that sort of thing. Is that a is that a fair assessment or that's the goal at least? Yeah, that's a fair assessment. And when I started doing this. Um five, six years ago, I really talked a lot about the flipped classroom and how it's different. And now I hardly talk about that at all with my students. I'm like, this is just how my classroom works. Mm -hmm. This is how it happens. Um, I think when I started, it was pretty novel at the school that I was at. And now there are a number of teachers um, in other disciplines uh, that use it as well. So they see it elsewhere and they just recognize it. It's like, oh, this is how I'm going to get my content or, you know, the majority of my content, it's going to happen outside of class. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the questions that we have, and we're going to discuss those things and kind of break it down some more. Here's a conversation with Valerie May on episode 29. So one of the things I was realizing as I was pulling together all of my information about you is, uh, you know, we spent that week down in, in Florida, and we had the more extended conversation. And we mm -hmm. did not talk about Gorongosa at all 
right. in our long conversation. And I was like, oh, I would love to know. And I remembered when you went on that trip because I remembered David uh, and Paul talking about you guys going over to Gorongosa yeah. at the time. Uh, they did a little name drop for you in horizontal transfer. And I remembered that uh, and, and that I was going through all the stuff. And I was like, oh, my God, that's right. She was one of the people on that trip. So what was that experience of going to Gorongosa like? And, and how did that, you know, how did you bring that back to your students? Like, what was that all about? Yeah, so that was it was a it was a whirlwind. It was um I don't know, it seems like something that big. It's like a year from now, I'm gonna go off and do this thing. And the time scale of it was was quick. Like the first mention of it was mention of it was I think in the end of middle of February. And then it was still, you know, we're going, we're not going, we might go, and then July fifth, we're headed off to Africa. Mm -hmm. Um and it was, I had heard about Gorongosa through the, um, the biointeractive resources. Um, there's the, the guide, which is a, a short video um, and with E.O. Wilson and the young boy who's deciding, you know, what he wants to do with his life. And E.O. Wilson convinces him he's, he needs to be a biologist, not just a guide, but, and guides are super important. And I saw how important they were in the park um, the, the wisdom on the ground, but this particular kid um, really needed to be a biologist um, so he could bring the science back and, and help with the restoration of the park. Um, and it was one of those things you watch it and every time the tears come to the <laughs> eyes and, and you get choked up about it and I watch it with my kids and we talk about how like how brave the parents were to let him go off to university and, and that kind of thing. And, um, but never really having the concept in my head that I would be there and I, I would walk around the park and I would, I would, um, and, and see all these things that we were seeing in the video. Um, so it was, it was a long plane ride to get there. I was just mm -hmm. talking to somebody the other day, 17 hours on a plane without landing is, is a long ways to go. Um, and proceeding to get into smaller and smaller planes over the course of two days. Um, but when we, um, finally, we're in that small plane and we're we're flying over Mozambique at a level where you can see the houses and you can see the termite mounds and you can see the the geometric distribution and all these things that I had learned about through lectures and through mm -hmm. activities and things like that. I'm not seeing it with my own eyes, um, not on the ground yet, but still seeing it. And as we came into the park, the, the pilot Kind of mumbles he's going to give us a special special treat and he comes down really really low and we fly over the floodplain and there's we can see the warthogs and we can see the water buck and we can see the baboons kind of all over the place and it's like wow i i'm in mozambique i'm in africa wow <laughs> um so we landed and 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 kind of got to see the Chitango is the town is the Chitango is the camp in in the park um and it, I kind of think of it I always describe it as three parts um there's the tourist part of the pie um and that's where there's a restaurant and there's a um the guiding services for the tourists and there's um I can't remember like cabana type of mm -hmm. places for people to stay um and then there's the this 
ranger portion of it where the pretty you know, the law enforcement the people that are protecting everybody who goes out and and all that type of thing and then there's the third which is is the science part um and that really is what the park is all about there's the science that's going on there there's the tourists that are coming in that are basically supporting the efforts of the restoration of the the park but also the area around the human developmental development area and then there's the those really really important rangers who are there to pick, protect the wildlife and protect the people that are are there to to see and learn more about about the area um so we spent the first couple of days just planning for the the workshop that we were going to do um and it was uh kind of an understanding by design Mm -hmm. set of two days where we were working with the researchers who were teaching um, the, the courses, the workshop courses for the Mozambican students um, who were going to be the next generation of conservation biologists. Um, so it was like we were teaching the people who were going to be teaching the people mm -hmm. who were going to be doing um, the conservation. And um, so we had planning days and then we had the workshop and we hadn't really gotten outside the fence yet. And, um, and the workshop was, was fantastic. It was, it went really well and um, it was well received. And then it was over and it was our chance to get outside the fence. I, I think I even said at one point, like, I want to go see Africa. <laughs> I've been inside this fence. Like I've been in the zoo. I want to, like, I've been the animal inside the zoo. I want to get out. I want to go see um what's around and um the first day we were free we went to um Vila Gorongosa which is the biggest town in in the area um and we're driving along the road and there's giant potholes and this is like a main highway and we're looking at the scenery it's beautiful it's just and I got this overwhelming feel like I'm in Africa this is this is what Africa looks like. Um, and we came into the city and we went to a high school. And I think one of the, like that day probably had the most impact on me of, of the whole time. Uh, the game drives were amazing. Seeing the wildlife in their natural habitat, seeing lions and elephants and zebras and, and all that was, was fantastic and amazing and I'll never forget it. Um, but being in that town and seeing students in there's just no resources being in a school there's nothing there's there's no books there's no smart boards there's no mm. i mean there were computers but the computers aren't connected to internet um so the students are learning word processing skills and things like that um but the teachers and the students were happy to be there and saw that school as an important aspect of their future and of their life. Um, I also noticed they gave us some numbers of statistics of how many girls versus how many boys were there. Um, and it was probably two thirds boys and one third girls. And it kind of brought to life in front of me something that I'd always talked to my students about, about how um, the importance of education of girls is important for bringing countries um, further along in their economic development. And um, it was always one of those things you hear about and you're kind of like, oh, but people are doing that. It's getting better. Mm. And then you see it and it's like, 
so so where are the girls? Why aren't they in school? Um, and, and we knew why. I mean, they were mothers. They were taking care of their siblings. It, um, but it was just, there it was. I saw it. Um, a little bit later, um, we got a chance to see kind of a, a middle school age group. Um, and they performed a song for us. And they did this crate skit on anti-poaching. Um, I didn't understand a word of the skit, but knew exactly what the skit was about. And it was, it was pretty good. Um, and basically the wives saying, stop, stop doing that. You're going to get in trouble. Um, so, and in that it was like equal girls and boys, and it was the girls being the leaders. And I just started thinking about what happens to flip that. So we have 12 and 13 year old girls being leaders, but they're not necessarily then being the leaders when they're 14, 15, 16, year, 16 years old. Um, so it got kind of emotional that day. And, um, you know, thinking like what has to happen to, and at first I was like, protect these girls. And, and it's, it's questions that aren't going to be answered right away. But now that I found out it's, it's things that they're trying to address through the economic development of the buffer zone in the park. Um, so girls clubs and keeping girls in school and giving them incentives to stay in school and educating families about the importance of that. And um, it was just, it was seeing something that was important to me and then knowing that there's people that are, it's important to people on the ground and it's being worked on. Um, it was pretty amazing. Uh, so I think that's the biggest thing that stuck with me too is just girls in the United States have so many opportunities, so many opportunities. Um, and they need to embrace that and cherish that. I mean, there's definitely not equity all mm. the time. Um, but yeah, that's my soapbox. I guess. <laughs> well, it's, it's also going to vary a little bit. Um, you know, where you are in the country and exactly, the degree. Exactly. I mean, you know, I think that it's, there's always a, a, a sliding scale of, of you know, um, historical inequality. I mean, you could just right. basically look at that. You just go back a generation and you say, you know, go back a generation or two and you look at the educational levels of men versus women and we see that evening out. But now when you look at, you know, CEO differences, you go, all right, well, the, we've made some gains even in the United States exactly. in terms of graduation rates and, and STEM careers. But in terms of who's leading now at that next level, we still don't, you know, there's still a gap in the United States. I think it was, you know, just amplified for you to see it in a different scope, a different yeah. part of that yeah. continuum. Um, yeah. Definitely understand that. So so now you, you, you've you gone, you've had this, um, you know, this, this wonderful experience. You come back and I know you worked on resources for HHMI and, and you've done mm -hmm. presentations on that. Um, how does that experience, you know, manifest itself in front of you, you know, when you've got your kids in front of you in school? Like, how did you bring that back? Uh -huh. Um. So... It's only been one year. Yeah. It, it seems like it's been, it, it seems like it happened five years ago. I, I everyone's wanted to stop myself. It's like, it was just last summer that, that I, that I was there. Um, so I, I just, I, big thing is I share with my students, 
the experience that I had and going someplace and just having an open mind and, and learning about a culture besides my own. Um, but the importance of, of people making a conscious effort to care about the natural world um, and bring it back to back to a, a state of, of stability and that we as humans have done a lot of stuff because it makes our lives easier and in without thinking about the consequences to to the natural world around us and it's going to take money and time to to restore and restoring doesn't mean necessarily making everything back to exactly the way it was before but to look at what's going to create a kind of a balanced natural system and that doing that doesn't mean that we then can't uh, I don't quite like can't have businesses and can't have economic development and can't have um as we hear so often very much it's either conservation or business well no when we conserve things there's just there's so many opportunities out there and it's a great this the park is a great example of people thinking of all aspects of the problem and trying to come up with a solution that while it's benefiting the natural world, it's also benefiting the people that live there as well. Yeah, they're using um, conservation to drive economic development. Exactly, exactly. Um, so it doesn't have to be conservation prevents economic development, which we often hear sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, it's uh, I, it's an amazing opportunity. And the funny thing is that you're describing this and you're describing your travels. You do have this sort of degree of like wonder. It sounds like you're somebody who like never goes anywhere that you just sit, like, <laughs> which I know is like the exact opposite. Like, as I said, you know, like every time I travel, you're there. So um, yeah. you, you travel a lot and you travel a lot more than uh, most people I know. Uh, and we were, were talking about like where you're going this summer. And I, and I yeah. happen to travel a fair amount this past summer and you seem to be going more different places. So it was really funny to me, like the way you're describing this travel, like, uh, you know, I'm traveling these new places. Like you're always traveling places and you still had this other worldly experience, um, yeah. even for somebody who's an experienced traveler. I would say it was definitely, I had pushed myself outside of a comfort zone of travel. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> I think that's also just, I just love to travel. I, I love to see new places and, and change and see the differences between what I live every day and, and that type of thing. So I, I think it's an important aspect of my life. Here is my first conversation with John Darko, episode 30. Design and design being all around us. Uh, but anyway, there was a little back and forth that happened at the workshop. And one of the people in the workshop posted, you know, you know, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And you chimed in. <laughs> and so I want to give you an opportunity to tell me and critique the phrase, all models are wrong, but some are useful. What are your thoughts on this phrase? Nice. Yeah, I definitely trolled that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it uh, comes from George E. Box. Yeah. Um, he said it a couple times in various ways through some papers. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, a little bit has to do with semantics. So uh, he's talking about statistical models. 
And so like uh, you have a linear linear regression line and or looking at the mean of data and the mean of data isn't actually telling you uh, what's actually there. So it's not what's there. Standard deviation is telling you kind of a, a spread of the data, but not actually what the data actually is. Mm -hmm. So there was, as a, for a review paper, I would recommend, and we can put this in the show notes too, uh, Caleb Bryce from the University of California, Santa Cruz wrote an article in American Biology Teacher in January, and he has a great review of what models are. Uh, and it's a, it's a really nice article. He goes through, uh, he talks mainly about scientific models versus teaching models. And what I'm, what I was trolling was uh, this idea that science, I don't think that all science models are wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think generally, I don't think that's a very contentious is issue. So uh, a science model, in my opinion, is like a hypothesis or even a theory could be a science model. It's the model that we have of how nature really works. So I think saying that all models are wrong, uh, I think it's being taking it a little too far. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I worry for the most part, I worry that when students hear this, which I, I've used that term several times, mm -hmm. uh, but by itself, I think it can lead to some kind of uh, epistemological relativism where just if every, if all science models are wrong, uh, then, you know, there is no, we're not learning anything about nature. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? I do. Uh, so I, I think we, we need to be very careful when we are saying all models are wrong, especially when we're referring to science models. So I think everyone listening to your show would agree that Darwin's model of evolution generally is not wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's extremely useful. So instead of wrong, I would, I would, I would substitute that phrase for a limited. Yeah. I think this, the word, the word wrong is your issue. The word wrong yes. is it's, it's, uh, it's this entirely too negative component. It doesn't, it, it undersells all of the, the information that went into building the model up to that point. Right. And we can talk about like, like a science model, like, um, Watson and Crick's concrete model of DNA, mm -hmm. right? Well, of course, we don't think that the metal that they compose the nucleotides out of is actually what DNA is made of. We know it's not. It was supposed to, already supposed to be an abstraction mm -hmm. of this chemical. So is DNA made out of metal? Uh, you know, that's, it's, they weren't thinking that it was going to be made out of metal. They were abstracting it already. So saying that their model is wrong, I think is uh, just taking it a little too far. Uh, I would, I would, I think my issue keeps on going when I, I see kind of contemporary issues of the view of science. I think nutrition science uh, is where people get this idea of science is always wrong. 
So I see this a lot, right? So uh, people say, well, butter was good for you. Now it's bad for you. Then it's good for you. So it goes back and forth with this ebb, ebb and flow. And this phrase of all model, models are wrong kind of in, in some sense reinforces that claim where, where I would argue that I'll take the strong position that I think science is really the only way we know anything about the natural world we live in. So all the other methods of knowing things about the world really aren't backed up by any kind of evidence. Mm -hmm. So I would like my students to kind of move forward and get this idea that yes, models are limited, but they are our best tools and really one of our only tools to understand the world that we live in and how we can make better decisions about our futures. Here is my conversation with Jen Fannerstell, episode 36. And I, um, I actually did have a conversation uh, with uh, my principal uh, yesterday, actually. Yesterday afternoon, I went in and we sat down, had a little informal conversation. And I was like, so uh, how would you feel if I uh, left school um, in June? Because we still will be in school and I, I go out and be an AP reader. Um, and it does mean I would leave my school for a week. Um, and uh, I'd already had the conversation with my family and my family was fine with it. <laughs> and I talked to my department head and then he said, I'm fine with it. Just make sure you get, uh, okay from, uh, from our principal. So I went and talked to him and, and so now here's my question. What the heck am I signing up for if I apply and get accepted to, to be an AP reader for the first time? Oh, you're getting signed up for summer camp for geeks. <laughs> That's what it is. Um, yeah. The AP reading is one of those things that um, I could use the cliche that I've heard millions of times that says it's the best professional development that there is. Um, part of me think that thinks that that's become cliche, but the other part of me realized it, it's just permeated our community so much. I think that I think that there's the, the two biggest overarching pieces that you get from becoming an AP reader are this one you learn about the conceptions and misconceptions from 240,000 kids. And that's way different than the conceptions and misconceptions you learn about your class of 30. And so to be able to not only see those in written form from students, but then to be able to talk about them um, with other teachers is, is absolute gold. Um, to be able to see that is, is just incredible. Those conversations with teachers though, that's another piece because about one of those misconceptions, it's inevitable that we as practitioners are going to say, well, how do we address this in our classroom? What do you do? How do you teach this? What activity do you do with students? How do you introduce it? You know, how do you create relevance? And all of those questions then lead to some of the best PD that I've ever seen. And most of it is, you know, maybe at the flying saucer or, mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, in power and light district and all of those public venues are places where you just, you know, very authentically congregate with people who are either like-minded or maybe not like-minded. And you have some really great discussions about what your classrooms look like. And so that piece of, of how you transform as a teacher is like none other. You'll just, you'll just never teach kids the same way um, once you've been to a reading. The second thing I love about the reading is that we are in service to each other. And so I come there, you come there, 
you know, this year 710 readers are going to come to Kansas City to grade each other's tests, to grade each other's students' tests like they're our own. And to me, that's something that we owe to AT. And so if people can be a reader for a year, if people can be a reader for 25 years, um, if people can maybe in the future do distributed scoring and be able to grade some from home because it's not conducive for them to be able to um, leave, leave. However you can give back to this community, I think is just something we owe it. And so those are the two overarching takeaways that I think that the reading provides. Yeah. What are you you know, what are you signing up for logistically? Yeah. <laughs> um, a really uncomfortable chair and it's really cold in there. And um, we sit at tables for eight hours a day. Uh, we feed you a lot. We um, put you in a position where you're kind of thinking, what did I want to do? And I never want to come back here. And then everybody wants to come back right about now is the time that we're all getting emails saying, hey, I couldn't come last year, but I really want to come this year. Um, everybody wants to come back and be a reader. Um, and so it's, it's uncomfortable, it's hard, it's challenging, but it's also one of the most rewarding things I do every year. Yeah. I, um, because last year, last year was a year where I couldn't have, go, I, I didn't feel like I really could go. I couldn't get away from school. And as I say, it's a, it's a delicate balance for those of us in the Northeast. And we were talking about our calendar earlier, um, you know, I, I will literally be leaving the last week of classes and missing the beginning of finals. Now, it's not the end of the world um, for my kids. You know, it's my AP classes are obviously done. My alternative program kids, they've already taken the state exam. So, like, realistically, it's logistically doable. Last year would have been a little bit harder um, to, just because we got out a little bit later. Um, but I think it's doable this year. But I did get, uh, like, texts from Ryan Reardon last year. He's like, why are you not here? Um, <laughs> and uh, there was probably more colorful language mixed in because it was Ryan. But um, of course, you got a text from Ryan wondering why you weren't there. Yeah, of course. I was like, I've never done this before. Like, first of all, Ryan and I didn't know each other like six months before uh, that that conversation. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like he like I don't know. He sort of expected after we had had a conversation that like I was just going to be there. Like I belonged there. Um, which is which is funny, like uh, you know, it's uh, to me. I with as somebody who hasn't gone, I I do kind of feel like it's probably gonna feel a little bit like NABT, in the sense that, um, like I went mm -hmm. to NABT and NABT, particularly the first couple of years, was like kind of overwhelming. Like, it's so right. much, um, and everybody's so good, and like you feel like a little bit, I don't know, not worthy. Like, oh my God, what's going on here? And it's a little overwhelming from that. But then you'll also look around and you're like, oh, but these are all my people. Um. <laughs> I, I think too, I mean, you'll have a, a different um, vantage point than I did going in, not knowing anyone. Mm -hmm. um, but you will definitely go in knowing people. I think the other thing that's really great about the read is that the chief reader does such a good job of putting people in positions where they're going to find success. And so, um, you know, putting people in the reading as table leaders who are people that not only know their biological stuff, um, but are also really great teachers and can build rapport with the eight people that are around them and make everybody feel like they're contributing and offer super constructive criticism. I maintain that table leaders are the cog. I mean, they're the ones that make the, the reading go round. And so, um, you know, she puts them in a great position. I think that she has 
people in leadership positions that are are strong-willed and willing to and willing to you know push for the sake of 240,000 kids and 13,000 teachers and in the end we developed rubrics that are really good and so um, just to go and see how that machine works and to be able to come home and say to your kids, listen, that exam that you wrote is going to be graded by a professional and it's going to be graded the same on day one as it was on day seven. And you got a fair grade because I know these people and I saw how this machine works. I think for them to trust in this system when you're sending their test off to be graded by, you know, who knows who, um, that's something that you can't do until you're a reader. And so it's, it's worth it. It's worth missing that last week with your kids to be able to come home and then tell your next year's kids something that's going to change who they are as students. Here's my first conversation with Ryan Laxon, longtime panelist on episode 38. The big thing with you then is, you know, you're one of the the people who exemplifies to me the 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 teacher leader, like the person who's not transitioning out of the classroom but is staying in the classroom but still is working to lead in the profession and one of the things i read in your introduction is that you're one of the co-founders of the missouri biology teachers association which to me is just like a mind-blowing concept that you would have started a statewide biology teacher association so i'm curious how how co-founding or how how that came about what, what was the the process that led you to to be involved with starting that organization well, you know, to be perfectly honest, you know, to say that I'm a teacher leader is, I think, I, I, I don't feel as though I'm a teacher leader. I, I feel as though I just kind of bulldoze through things and then apologize afterwards. Probably it's not the best way to do things, but I just tend to, yeah, you know, get stuff done that way. Um, as it pertains to uh, Missouri Biology Teachers. Association. It, it was the same way. Um, I did not, um, I, I really was not involved with NABT that much. And um, our, our friend Tom, Tom Freeman mm-hmm. um, from California, he was at NABT in, um, I can't, maybe it was Denver or California. No, it wasn't in Anaheim. In Anaheim, but in any case, he was there with um, uh, Dr. Pam Close, mm-hmm. a biology teacher at uh, Hickman High School in uh, Columbia, Missouri, and they were talking about something, you know, HHMI or AP Biology or whatever, about how Missouri did not have a biology teachers. Um, I'm I'm sorry, a uh, affiliate. And so he, uh, Tom asked uh, Pam if she knew me. She did not. Um, he put us in contact. She talked about how do we how do we do this? We need to get information out. And so within you know before the end of the night, May the Twitter was made, the split bylaws and started throwing stuff together. Um, Pam used her relationship with Jackie, um, the uh, executive director uh, from that end, um, Heather Essig from St. Louis. She helped us get things organized as well. Just kind of went from there. We are still 
very early stages of things to, you know, establish ourselves as a affiliate chapter. You know, what is the value added to joining? We don't really have any uh, membership requirements. You know, if you would like to say that you're a member, we'll make you a member. We'll invite you to. We will inform you of what all is going on, but you know, as now we are all very busy with, um, you know, our our day jobs. Mm-hmm. So we just try to divvy up the uh, the 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 workload amongst each other. So I, you know, my 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 strength is that, you know, I. From from a tech perspective, I can get things on the internet and build things pretty quickly. So that's just kind of what kind of kind of what I did. <laughs> yeah, but I wouldn't I wouldn't minimize it too much. I, you know, you're 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 giving a lot of credit to a lot of good people, but you were also a big part of that room. Um, and as you're describing it, it's not that different an organization than what I'm seeing in Massachusetts. Um, in terms of the Massachusetts Association of Biology Teachers, they have a much longer history, but it's a pretty small group. We have a an annual conference, and it's you know a few dozen teachers. And even though we've got you know have to have hundreds and hundreds of biology teachers statewide, um, it's not a it's not a huge group uh, that's involved in the statewide organization. So the fact that you guys were able to initiate and start something, and then host NABT this year is uh, is saying a lot. Well, you know, luckily we, um, uh, Pam and I are also involved with Science Teachers of Missouri. And so because we are so small, we made that connection. You know, Science Teachers of Missouri is actually the the NSTA affiliate for Missouri. But because we didn't really have a robust NABT affiliate and Science Teachers of Missouri has um, over 2,000 members. We were able to use the science, the you know, the Science Teachers Missouri resources to help um, host, and it was much more successful than um, if we were to try and do it alone with um, the the Biology Teachers Association. This is my conversation with Brittany Franskoviak back on episode 46. One of the topics you've written about on uh, your Medium posts uh, was about your AP curriculum and how you've created these open-ended prompts yeah. that correlated to essential knowledge statements um, and and some sort of generalized rubrics that you use to help them. Um, and you definitely have talked about the idea of... You, know, you put a lot of words in there that uh, spoke to me in terms about how, how you are helping your students... Um, sort of access and think about the the key essential knowledge that they need to have, you know, comfort with before they sit down on the AP. So I'm curious sort of how your curriculum evolved to where it is and also how's it going? Um, yeah, th- those are great questions. I think that's, I mean, the stuff that I've written about or that I've got on the internet about my curriculum is kind of the heart of my AP instruction. So this is my fourth year teaching AP biology, I think. Yeah, year four. Um, 
and the summer before my first year of AP Bio, I attended a traditional app sci from College Board, mm-hmm. uh, which was great. I had Tom Mueller, who's fairly well known in um, the Mid-Atlantic area, biology, AP Bio circles, led my session, and, and he was great. He's a little old school, um, and I don't mean that to be derogatory or anything necessarily, just clearly from a different generation of teacher than me. Uh, but I appreciated that insight, mm-hmm. and I felt like I got a good this logistical footing with approaching an AP course. And then that same summer, I went off to the BSCS um, AP Biology Leadership Academy. This was in its, it was the second year of the Leadership Academy. And so it was before they launched all of these regional academies, which they're doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, this was in, um, in Colorado Springs. So they, we traveled there and we were there for a week. I was in the same cohort as David Knufke mm-hmm. um, and meeting him and a handful. I mean, I could, Cheryl Hollinger was in my cohort uh, where I met her and um, Robin Bulleri and Robin Tadistra, just all of these like really amazing AP biology educators who've been teaching AP, you know, much longer than me and teaching generally much longer than me. So the, the first thing about that was that I just got surrounded by some really cool people who were very, um, immersed in the world of AP bio. Um, but the other thing that I really walked away with from that BSCS experience was a, a really, I think, exceptionally in-depth familiarity with the curriculum framework, uh, which is a pretty daunting document. I think if you're a new AP bio teacher and you're and someone's like, oh, just look at the curriculum framework, and you're like, great, <laughs> curriculum. And then you look at it, it's like this hundreds of pages of PDF thing um, that is, you know, accessibly written but just really long and not necessarily like teacher friendly it's hard to go from that pdf document to like well what what does my calendar look like like what am Mm -hmm. i doing on day 47 or whatever so with bscs we've spent a lot of time focusing on the structure of the curriculum and the essential knowledge statements and that was the grain size that we worked with which was here are these essential knowledge statements they're, you know, broad enough that you really have to spend a few days or in some cases a few weeks on one of them to really flush them out in your classroom. But they're narrow enough that as a teacher, you can look at it and sort of think like, oh, okay, like this, you know, there are two or three case studies that I might use to get at this, or like, this is what I'd expect students to be able to do with this knowledge. Um, I found them to be really, really useful. And that's what I, what I latched onto. So going into my first year, I started with those essential knowledge statements and I used them to kind of build out a map um, BSCS calls this a conceptual flow graphic. Mm-hmm. The thing I used my first year was not really a, a very good conceptual flow graphic. But I looked at the statements and I tried to put them in a sequence that I thought made sense. Mm-hmm. And that was how I built my sequence. Uh, but my course looked nothing like it looks now. It was, it was a disaster. Um, I, I didn't have any coherent philosophy around assessment oh, okay. going into that first year of teaching APIO. And I mean assessment really broadly. Like, I didn't have any good grasp of, like, what does it mean to assign credit for work? Like, what am I assigning credit <laughs> for? Should I weight things? Um, as is, well, I actually wasn't the only AP bio teacher in my building that first year. Uh, but I was in a situation where there was really no um, chance of having a collaborative relationship with the other AP bio teacher, um, partly because I was now an AP bio teacher. So... I, I was just kind of making things up as I went. And I remember pretty vividly, um, this was in 2013, there was exactly one released AP exam from College Board. Yep. But I also had no test bank. 
<laughs> I mean, I had the textbook test bank, which is what I use, but it's not good. Um, at least it's not reflective of the actual exam. And it's very facty, right? So it was, I was just kind of trying to decide like what facts my kids should know. So my mm. kids weren't assessing well, um, which is kind of the first problem. And then I had a management issue where like, I'd never taught an AP course before. And so part of me was like, oh, I need to do this really hard line, like AP teacher, like, oh, you failed this test. Well, you should have studied more, right? And I just, as a teacher, it was like, I can just put this back on the students because they're AP students. I'm like, that's fine. Um, and similarly, like, you know, kids would turn in homework assignments or classwork assignments. And I'd be like, well, I guess maybe this is worth 20 points. I don't know. What do points mean? Mm. Um, do they get credit for trying? Like, they didn't know how to do it. So maybe they shouldn't get credit, but like, they still don't know how to do it, and that seems problematic. Um, so I had this one conversation with a kid in the spring in one of our last units. He had turned in this homework assignment. It was a virtual Drosophila lab assignment. Mm -hmm. You know, there are many iterations of that floating around. Um, and I grabbed one off the internet, if that's what you do, and uh, handed it to my kids. And we had spent some time in class going through it, you know, and I, I felt like I had done a fair job instructing um, hypothesis testing as, as fair as you can do in your first year of teaching AP biology. And many of my students did fine. They did the thing, they turned it in. Um, most of them were in the ballpark, but this one kid wasn't. Um, he turned in this assignment that was, I think mostly not finished or he had tried one set and done it poorly or something. So I didn't give him full credit on the homework and he came in as students do and he's like, why did I lose points on this assignment? And I said, well, you know, you didn't do most of the assignment, so you didn't get points for it. And he said, well, but I didn't know how to do it. And I don't remember what I said back to him, but I'm sure it wasn't useful. I think it was something along the lines of, well, you should have come in to see me um, or, you know, the time to deal with that was a week ago and not now. It was something unhelpful. Um, and the conversation ended with the student not getting credit for this assignment and also still not knowing how to do the thing that I needed him to know how to do. Um, and also, by the way, now he didn't like me at all because he felt like I'd unjustly penalized him for not understanding something. Yep. Um, you know, like it was just really unproductive all around. And at that point, you know, I knew that I couldn't really do anything that school year. Um, but I, I left work that day and was like, no, like my first priority this summer is to figure out grading an AP bio. Like I, I need, like I need that. Like the content I can do you know, the, the conceptual flow stuff I can work with, but like, I need a grading philosophy because I don't have one. Yeah. And that's what led me to the, um, to writing up these responses, these free response prompts that I generated. Um, at the time, I was also listening a lot to some folks who are doing work around standard-based grading in AP Bio. Yeah, you were, like, uh, as you were talking, that's what, I was like, the way you said points, um, I don't know if it came across to everybody, but to me, like, it had a four-letter word uh, yeah. connotation to the word points, right, right. as you said it, and uh, and as so, like you said it with 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 uh, venomous is almost the way the points came across, and that's what I was thinking. I was like, all right, so this is we're going very standards-based on this then. Yeah, but not purely standards-based. I think for a number of reasons, and I've I've oscillated a little bit. Um, I'm actually more traditional now than I was in that first year. I was piloting these prompts, um, but at the time, like I said, I was. Um, you know, listening and learning a lot from Dave Konefsky, who at the time was doing a lot of standards-based grading in his own classroom. Um, and sort of through him and through some other BSCS folks, I also um, met and started to learn from Bob Poon, who was doing some cool standards-based things um, in his school. And, you know, a number of other people. There's lots of buzz out there mm -hmm. in the community about <clears throat> standards-based. 
And for a number of reasons, like pure standards based, I think would not work for my classroom in my school. Mm -hmm. Just it, it's not really practical um, in our system. But I like some ideas from it. And one of the things I really liked was trying to pinpoint what is it that I actually want kids to know? Like when I give them assignments, like what is the takeaway? Like what is the thing that I need to have them demonstrate in order for me to be comfortable that they know something? Um, and the other thing I really wanted to do was get away from those stupid conversations about why did I get a 12 out of 15 on this assignment? Um, especially when I don't always have a great reason for why they got a 12 out of 15. Like, I don't know, you just didn't do something. Or like, how do I how do I balance like holding kids accountable for knowledge, um, but also acknowledging effort and incentivizing, like revisiting concepts until they learn them. All of which are things that standards-based grading philosophies try to, try to address. Mm -hmm. um, and so I realized that I had this great set of standards, which are these essential knowledge statements. Um, and so what I could do is I could, you know, make pretty much the only graded thing in the class be their responses to some prompts that were really specifically tied to these essential knowledge statements. And I went with a generalized rubric. My rubric is, um, rubric is probably not even a great word. I'm sure someone somewhere is going to look at my rubric and then send me an email about how it's not a rubric. <laughs> it really isn't. Um, it's very vague, but it's a 10 point scale basically. And I did a 10 point scale. Um, I, again, probably not for any like great reason. It's convenient, I guess. Mm -hmm. Kids understand a 10-point scale. Parents understand a 10-point scale. Um, and I decided that if a student submitted an assignment and it was honestly attempted, they wouldn't get lower than a 6 out of 10. So mm. there's a basement, right? If you're engaging with the course and you're trying your best, even if the thing you write down is completely like out in left field, you're going to get a 6 out of 10. And the other piece that, that goes along with that is I made the decision that these would be infinitely revisable. So if a student turns in something that is a six out of 10, because it's completely wrong, they can revise it. Like mm -hmm. I will look at it. I'll read it. I'll make some comments. They can go back. And if they want to, they can make changes. And most of them do like most kids who get a six or seven out of 10 will redo their assignments. And so what I found then was that if a student really didn't understand like Mendel's laws of inheritance, there was a structure now where they can circle back. Mm -hmm. And they can try it again because there's a really specific prompt about Mendel's laws of inheritance because they really need to know it. And so it's not good enough for me or for them, for them to be getting a 60% on Mendel's laws of inheritance if we want to move forward. Like they need to know it. Mm -hmm. So this allows them some space to go back and redo it. It also mitigated a lot of plagiarism um, because they're open-ended. Plagiarism is really obvious. And so it's not that I don't have kids. It's not that my students never plagiarize. They're teenagers. Like they plagiarize. But it's really easy to catch, and they know that because it's writing. It's not like a you know a practice set of problems, mm -hmm. which they do also get from me. But those things aren't graded. So what I grade is the writing. Um, so when I have someone who just copies and pastes from Wikipedia, or in one notable case, I had a student copy and paste an entire PubMed ab abstract. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, like immediately, like, oh, you plagiarized, right? And then they get a zero, and then we have a conversation. But the zero in that case is, is kind of meaningful because it's like, look, if you had at least tried, yeah. you would have gotten a 60. And you could have redone it, but you didn't try. You copied and pasted, so now you have a zero, and you can't redo it. And you still don't know what this thing is about, yeah. but you need to know. Um, so that, that helped, and it helped me guide my instructions. So those prompts have become the backbone of the homework for my course. 
And the prompts that I've written help me direct my classwork. So I can kind of be like, okay, the essential knowledge task looks like this. So I need to make sure that before we get to that in class, they've looked at like this case study together, or we've looked at this kind of data analysis together. Um, and it just helps me. It's like how I build the calendar really for my class now. Here's my conversation with Tanea Hibbler on episode 61. You started working with this AMTA grouping. How has that changed your approach in the classroom since you've been working with them for the last few years? Well, like when, when I first started teaching, like I said, I wasn't really prepared to be in the classroom with actual students. <laughs> All the books I read about, like, you know, theory didn't help me actually when I got in the room with the kids. And so I initially I had taken a physical science um, modeling course mm -hmm. and it, I happened to be teaching a general science class and I had to teach a physical science class and so that worked out for me my my um, you know my first few years of teaching and then um, I kind of switched over into life sciences and and biology and the modeling there wasn't really materials for modeling in like environmental science or life sciences so I kind of was like oh I guess I can't use this anymore so I kind of just did whatever I thought would, you know, whatever worked. But then I found out, oh, there's this thing called biology modeling, too. <laughs> and so when I found that, I just, I loved it because it makes the kids, like the kids do all the work, like the kids do all the work. They do all the, um, they collect all the data, they do all the labs, and they interpret everything and they tell you what their thinking is. So you really have a, a better understanding of where you're where your kids are at like you know what misconceptions that they care what they that they hold on to and they can work through those misconceptions by um, working with each other in groups they do a lot of whiteboarding a lot of presenting and um, so i like that style of teaching of having the class be more student-centered and i i just want to know how can i implement that in the ap biology classroom so i'm doing the workshops because it helps me be a better teacher mm -hmm. and then i'm trying to get teachers together who um, hopefully will discuss how we can do this in AP biology. All right, That's so, where I am right now. So let's break this down a little bit because the word modeling, I, I often joke that I, I had the word modeling in my head for like two years and I couldn't wrap my head around it because I, I realized that when people use the word model, different people have different perspectives. So like, you know, my friend John Darko, when he heard model, he thought computer model. So he learned to program and he programs all these computer models. And then he even has his students build some computer models. And then you talk to some teachers and, um, you know, you use the word model and what they're doing is they're pulling out Play-Doh and chalk markers. And they're like, right. it's like craft time as, uh, as uh, Paul Anderson sometimes says. And then from, <laughs> from the lab standpoint, for me, when I think model, I think model organism. And so like, I want to represent, you know, cell respiration. So what, how can I use a living organism to model that? So um, are you checking all the boxes in this or what is, what does modeling look like to you in your classroom um, and maybe in these workshops that you're helping teachers through? I think it's just a conceptual model that helps students understand a particular concept. So mm. it's something that they should be able to like draw or write on a whiteboard, mm -hmm. right? And the model, whatever model that they come up with to, like if it's a model for population growth, it could be a graph, it could be, um, it could be a storyboard, um, depending on what you're talking about. It, in physics, it's usually like, a, you know, graphing it with mathematical equations, but not in biology. Um, but whatever it is that you're, 
that the students are coming up with, that model that they create helps them to understand uh, whatever the topic is that you're discussing. And the students are, like different students might come up with different conceptual models, but when the whole class gets together and they share and they ask questions of each other, you can usually get to a point where you come to a consensus and you say, okay, this is where we are as a class. So what one class produces might be slightly different than what another class produces, but they're all building up to the same understanding. It just might be slightly different from period to period. So when you use the word modeling, you're having the, this is like the mental schema that is in the kids' heads is coming out into a representation that they are sharing with the class. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. And so the the idea and then the hopeful through the discussion and the iterative process of working with others that they're going to then refine their model. They're going to be questioned. They're going to be challenged. They're going to be able to do that with others. And that model is going to change over time. Yeah, definitely. It should it should change. And and we don't you know, you're not going to always you can't necessarily end every unit where they have. A perfect understanding of everything but they definitely where they walk in when they come into the class is a different place from where they are at the end of the unit uh, and then what what I like about it most is um, you do have kids that push back and they're like why aren't you teaching us anything but a lot of the kids even though they might be afraid because they're used to being lectured at and then memorizing taking notes and memorizing most of the kids say I love this class like I love I love the class and I, I love what we're doing. And, um, and then some kids say, Hey, I like, I can see myself being, you know, a scientist, like kids that maybe you didn't think would ever say that before. And that's why I like it. So I hope you enjoyed those conversations I had from the past few years. Uh, You can always subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Go back in the archives. I have them posted on the website, lifeofthschool.org, where you can get show notes and all past episodes. Uh, You can also go to patreon.com slash lots. And from there, you will see many of my past episodes. Audio is posted as well. I want to thank Jank Jenkins and X Magicians for music on this and every episode. And you can also go back in my Twitter feed to see my posts for this episode and all my past episodes. Uh, So thanks all for joining me and I hope to hear I hope you hear from me again soon but no promises on that one take care